Let's pray. Father, thank you that you call us to do this this morning, part of this local church. I thank you that the communion of saints is gathered here, Lord, together in this place for this time and this moment. And Lord, around the world, around the country, around the globe, there, depending on the time frame and time zones, Lord, there are multitudes of people who are gathering to lift up the name of Jesus, to sit under the preached word, to receive instruction and encouragement, Lord, and to be equipped and sent out into the everyday stuff of life to do good in the name of Jesus. Spirit, I pray you would come and do that exact thing here among us this morning, that this would not just be another religious service that we go through. But God, you and your spirit would show up and you would move us, you would change us, you would continue to form us as your people who are being sent, Lord, into everyday stuff of life, Lord, seeking to do good in the name of Jesus so that multitudes of people from every tribe and tongue and race and socioeconomic class in this Merrimack Valley area would come to know Jesus. So God, may our church here be a city set apart on a hill within Andover, Lord, for your good and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So again, I'm Brian, I'm one of the pastors who gets the privilege and honor to do this uh, week in and week out. Most, most weeks I'm, I'm 3.2 mi miles down the road in North Andover playing with those kids down there. This morning I get to hang out with you guys. Uh, it's either myself or, or John who um, usually gets to break open the scriptures with you and help explain them in hopes that Jesus, by his grace, would equip us to go and be the church, be the city on a hill uh, in the everyday stuff of life apart from when we're gathered here this morning. So that's my hope this morning as we gather. And, and the primary reason Peter reads Mark 12 this morning is to kind of give you a picture of what the banner, uh, essentially, that flies over the church. And we talk about the church across all of the globe. Here's the banner, the most important thing that Jesus ever lays down for his followers, for his people, to grasp, to know, to understand, and to begin to live out. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength, and to love our neighbor, love anyone, as ourselves. But here's the reality. Uh, this isn't always true of the church, is it? This commandment. English poet G.K. Chesterton was quoted as saying this, by far the most powerful argument against the truth of Christianity is Christians. Or you can ask people who are on the fence with God who doubt Christianity. Maybe some of you guys are here this morning uh, curious or, or questioning or even doubting. And I say to you, welcome. So glad you're here. There are certainly legitimate arguments that, that people in culture have made uh, good arguments or cases that have been made that doubt the existence of God. Rational, uh, thought-out uh, arguments against the existence of God that cause people to cast a belief in a God, in a creator, out into the wilderness. Won't even tolerate it. But if you were to prod many of those people who express a doubt in Christianity or a doubt in the existence of God, what you might, if you, if you were to scratch underneath the surface, what you might find with many people is that the reason there's such a hard time believing in the existence of a God is primarily because of the Christians they know. Or they've been let down by the church in some way, shape, or form. Christians have let them down in some ways. Alan Hirsch, who's a church planting movement researcher, writer, practitioner, he comments about uh, the post-Christian West in his research when he says this. He says, the average non-Christian population 
generally reported a high interest in God, in spirituality, uh, in Jesus, and prayer that taken together indicated that a significant search for meaning has been going on in our time. But the same research indicates that when asked about what they thought about the church, the average non-Christian described a high degree of alienation. It seems that at present, most people report a God, yes, the church, no, type of response, and mostly towards the institutional church, the traditional church. You know, even Gandhi's been quoted as saying something to the effect of this, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians, because your Christians are nothing like their Christ. You see, belief in God isn't all that difficult to get to. What happens oftentimes is it's the church that kills the deal with people. And yet, here it is in the creed. You see, we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed, uh, looking at kind of the, the oldest creed, the oldest document, really the summary of faith for us as followers of Jesus. And we've been walking through this, trying to gain an understanding and lay a foundation for, hey, as the everyday people of God sent into everyday life on the front lines of our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and in our schools and wherever we find ourselves in the everyday stuff of life, what do we actually believe? What forms us? What shapes us as the people of God? And we've looked really at a big, beautiful view of who God is, the triune God is, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But yet here we go in the creed. It says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Believing in the church, being able to handle the church and understanding the church and believing in God are lumped together, are hand in hand. You really are not going to be able to find God without dealing with the church somehow. And that's really the big idea that we want to fly with this morning. And so what we've got to do is we've got to do a little bit of work on the church this morning. And so we're going to consider the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. And we're going to consider two points this morning as we dig through this. Number one, uh, the church universal, the Holy Catholic Church. And number two, the church local, the communion of saints. All right? So we're going to look at the church universal and the church local. You ready to work? All right. I'm going to work. Here we go. Number one, the church universal. Uh, when we hear this phrase, the Holy Catholic Church, uh, this is not a reference in the Apostles' Creed to the Roman Catholic Church, but rather it's a reference to the universality of the church at large, which means essentially is you and I are a part of something so much bigger than what you and I are doing right here and right now and what we do week in and week out as we gather in this place, which also means this. You and I have brothers and sisters all over the globe, man, all over the place. We got JPs over in Lawrence worshiping and preaching with our brothers and sisters over at Lawrence Evangelical Church this morning as God continues to form a partnership, a beautiful partnership with that church. JPs worshiping with brothers and sisters in that church over there, right down the road. We've got people all over the world who have nothing, we have nothing in common with other than the fact that we have a shared gospel language. That's the only thing that unites us and makes us part of the family of God is with God as our Father, is the fact that we have a shared gospel language. But when it comes down to everything else, likes, preferences, cultural experiences, so many differences. We go off in all types of different directions. And these are people that we would call men and women, brothers and sisters, who have different likes and different styles in the way they worship Jesus. And they're doing it this morning. Even as we do it here in this place right now, we've got brothers and sisters down the road, brothers and sisters in Lawrence, brothers and sisters across the globe who are gathering 
to make much of Jesus in song, to receive the preached word, to remember as they come to Jesus' table and break bread, the sacrifice and the grace that's been extended to broken people, and then to be equipped and sent out back into the everyday stuff of life so that they would go and do good in the name of Jesus to the people that Jesus is sending them to in everyday life. Essentially, it comes down to this. You and I are part of a wicked big family. A wicked big family. And here's how this has basically gone down. First Peter 2 says this. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God people. You are God's people. Now, some in culture, for whatever cu uh, cultural reason or agenda-driven reason or comfort, you know, com comfort idol, um, choose to, to stop sometimes having children based on decisions. Sometimes people can't anymore. But, but here's how God has done it, essentially. He has said for thousands and thousands of years, and he continues to do it today, bring them in. I'm going to keep adding to the family. I'm going to keep adopting kids because there's more lost people out there who need to become my people. And so he's continued just to add to the family all over the globe throughout the ages. And so when the Apostles' Creed says the Holy Catholic Church, it's referencing all Christians from all over the place over all of time as part of the family of God. And it's amazing when you get outside of your own, if you've ever had a chance to be on a short-term mission trip, I know we just had a team that came back from Mexico. If you have a chance to experience a short-term missions trip or if you're able to cross over into another culture that's different from what you've experienced or the way you're used to doing it, it's pretty amazing, especially when you get outside of our North American context and what we're used to here in the West and the ways we describe the church. Because now it starts to look completely different. In different ways, Jesus is lifted up and people are worshiping together. Romans, uh, Revelation 7 actually gives a picture of what this thing is going to look like someday when we're all gathered together someday. Revelation 7 says this. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out, with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a picture of the holy Catholic Church, the universal church, all believers over all times. And you know what this has nothing to do with? Revelation 7 gives us a picture that tells us that this has nothing to do with the denomination. Man, this thing has nothing to do with the building. This has nothing to do with a way or style of church or the way you're used to doing things. It has nothing. All that stuff goes right out the window when we consider Revelation 7. Revelation 7, actually, if you think about it, Revelation 7 should actually humble us when we consider other churches. Right? Because the church of Jesus, here it is, the church of Jesus should never, ever be in competition with one another. The church of Jesus should never be pitted against one another because uh, the, the, the church down the street does it different than we do. Or they sing maybe more songs or the, or the style of pre or, or however they do it. If a church is faithfully proclaiming Jesus, then we should never be in competition with that church. Consider Colossians 2. Paul says this. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
and he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When Paul says that, when he says you, how many people from the South? Anybody grow up in the South? When he says you, he's saying all y'all. You feel me? All y'all? Anybody from uh, Charlestown, South Boston? Where? Child? That a boy, all right, Townie, right? Use guys, use, or from the North End, right? Use. When Paul says you, he's not talking about individual you. He's talking about plurality you, all y'all, use guys. All of you, a multitude of people. And he says the devil and his crew, they're done. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, the devil and his crew are done. And now you know what's happening? There are thousands and thousands of churches that are gathered together who are faithfully proclaiming and believing what Jesus has done for them and faithfully preaching the Bible. And you know what? They've got flaws. And you know what? They might do it different than we do. And you know what? It might look or feel a little bit different than what we're used to. But you know what? You and I call Free Christian Church home. I don't know if you knew this. Let me let you in on a little secret. Free Christian Church... She has flaws, too. Do you know that? Free Christian Church has flaws. Churches down the road might have flaws. Churches around the globe might have flaws. But you want to know why the primary reason they have flaws and we have flaws is? It's because you and I occupy her. You and I occupy her. And there's something beautiful about that, too, at the same time. Right? We've been telling our North Andover crew, and, and I've been saying, you know Hey, every single week, you know what you do? You bring bucket loads of sin in here. We just, we just bring truckloads, we back truckloads of sin into this place. But we're here, and we're sitting under the grace of God as, as, as the redeemed people of God that Jesus, by his grace, is working in through his spirit. Acts 2, the beautiful church, right? The formation of the church. If you've read your Bible a little bit, there's this picture of like the early church forming. And, and sometimes when we look at that, we go, hey, the Acts 2 church, we want to be like that. It's this utopic, beautiful, we think it's lots of flowers and pony rides and sunshine and everyone singing happy days. But here's the beauty of what Acts, 4, Acts 2, 42 says. It says, and they were devoted to one another. Right? Keyword devoted, which tells me, right, you've got people from all types of different crafts and socioeconomic classes and trades and different lifestyles and backgrounds, and they're all being brought together by the Spirit of God because of what Jesus has done. And they're coming together as the church, and it says they were devoted to one another, which means, hey, they had to work at it. They were committed to working at it. They were committed to one another and working their flaws out and working out the sins that each one of them brought into the community. The Spirit was doing a beautiful work of forming them and working it out. And they were devoted to one another. But thank God, right? Thank God, right? His Holy Spirit, JP hit on it last week. The Holy Spirit, He is the divine resident who permanently resides within the walls of every believer. And so what that means is, is He's at work. We should just put a big sign out front that says, hey, we're a work in progress, right? No perfect people here. Hello? No perfect people here. We're a work in progress. And so if you're here and you feel broken and you feel like, hey, I walked in and it took me a long time to walk into this place because I feel like I've had to have it all together in some way, hey, welcome. Welcome to the club. You're speaking to the biggest broken mess, by the way. Right? So welcome if you're here. We're a work in progress because the Spirit is doing a work in each and every one of us. May our mouths always praise those who seek to proclaim the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, even if they have a different style, even if they do it a different way, man. 
Because we have no enemy but the sin that resides within our own lives and Satan himself. That's our only enemy. All right, so that's a little, just a little picture of what the church universal looks like, the Holy Catholic Church. Secondly, let's consider the church local, the communion of saints. And this essentially gets down to the nitty-gritty of the local church, which is what you and I here are, the local church on the ground, crossing paths, you and I, with one another. And there's two things we'll consider here. Number one, who is the church to be? And number two, what is the church to do? Who are we to be and what are we to do? Number one, who is the church to be? And here's my definition, so if it doesn't make sense, you'll understand why it's because it's my definition. So you might have to think through it because grammatically I usually mess things up. So here we go. The communion of saints is that place where those that God has brought into the family through Jesus are crossing paths with one another and learning to do a whole new way of life together. So I'll probably, as I say this, I realize I might step on the New England Christian mindset a little bit. And maybe that might be some people here. But let me do it graciously when I say this. I believe part of God's good design as taught from the scriptures is that you and I would belong to a local church and not just attend a local church. That's different than belonging. To belong to a local church, and when I mean church, we don't mean just an organization or a denomination or a building or we're talking about the people, the church. To belong to a people, the church, the redeemed people of God. To belong to the church is to allow yourself to be bothered and challenged by someone else. While at the same time, you're bothering and challenging someone else on the other side. You feel me? It's to allow yourself to be bothered, to be shaped, to be challenged, while at the same time, your characteristics and your personality and our flaws are challenging and bothering other people at the same time. In their sinfulness bothering us, and in our sinfulness bothering them, you know what's happening? God the Spirit is making us holy and growing us to a place where we reflect the beauty and the grace of Jesus and his gospel both to one another and to the culture that Jesus sends us to as we do life together as the church local. So the question is, uh, Brian, hey, what does this communion of saints actually look like, boots on the ground? What does the reality of that look like? And I think the New Testament gives us a place, uh, multitudes of places, gives us a place in which we are to uh, walk out this communion of saints. And it's this place called the one another's. Have you been there before? The one another's. 59 one another's in the New Testament. And you know what? You're going to get every single one of them right now. Now, if you're counting, because some, you some of you people like to count, and you're going to keep track and to see if I messed up, right? I'm probably going to say about 39 or 40 of them, because a lot of the one some of the one another's are actually repeated. So I won't repeat them. Right? So there's 59 one another's in the New Testament that help us describe what walking out this communion of saints looks like. You ready? Here we go. Love one another. Serve one another. Encourage one another. Accept one another. Strengthen one another. Help one another. Care for one another. Forgive one another. How are we doing on that one? Submit to one another. Commit to one another. Build trust with one another. And here's a quick question. How do you build trust with someone? You build trust with someone by allowing them into the stuff of your life. Allowing them beyond the surface of, hello, how are you? I'm doing well. Nice to see you. Goodbye. You actually allow someone the space and the invasion into your life where you actually open up to that person about personal things, deep, dark secrets, or things that you struggle with. And you allow them the opportunity to become a trustworthy person. You can't necessarily do that when you cross paths with someone on a Sunday morning for 10 minutes, can you? 
Trust one another. Be devoted to one another. Be patient with one another. Hello? Be interested in one another. Be accountable to one another. Confess to one another. Live in harmony with one another. Do not pass judgment on one another. Don't slander one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another. Admonish one another. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Meet with one another. Agree with one another. Be concerned for one another. Be humble to one another in love. Be compassionate to one another. How do you be compassionate to someone? Actually have a lifestyle of showing compassion to someone rather than just a one-time good deed? You actually got to know someone's story. You've actually got to know the junk that's happening in their life and be willing to take some of that junk on yourself in order to invest in them and show true biblical compassion, Jesus-like mercy and compassion to someone. You've got to be able to enter into their junk with them, don't you? Do not anger one another. I may have broken that one with this sermon. Don't lie to one another. Don't grumble to one another. Give preference to one another. Be at peace with one another. Be of the same mind to one another. Comfort one another. Be kind to one another. Be hospitable to one another. Live in peace with one another. Honor one another. Carry one another's burdens. And again, these one another's are impossible if you simply go to church rather than belonging to a church, right? Belonging to a people. The belonging part is where the beauty of a Jesus-transformed life actually begins to live itself out as you practice the one another's, right? We begin to grow and we begin to experience God in ways that we would never ever be able to experience or grow in God if it was just me, Jesus, and my Bible. And I don't need the church. The church is just a nice add-on or option. You and I, listen, here's the reality about me as a broken, sinful man who, by the way, had to ask for a ton of forgiveness as I really worked through that list, the one another's. I realized I probably broke 57 out of 59 of them. And I do that pretty continually because I'm a selfish human being a lot of times. But here's the reality about me, and maybe you're like me, that I will not grow both as a man, as a pastor, as a husband, as a dad, as a person who's trying to do good in the name of Jesus, I will not grow in those roles apart from a gospel-centered community of people who are in on my life and who I'm belonging to at the same time. You feel me on that? I can't practice the one another's on myself. That's who we're to be, small picture, that's who we're to be. The other question is this, what are we to do? What is the church to do? And in a nutshell, one of the first inklings we get about what the church is to do is actually from Jesus early on when he was starting his ministry out. He was gathering a bunch of friends of his, disciples they were called. And in Luke 5, there's a picture of this. Luke 5, Jesus is walking along and he sees some fishermen and they're fishing and they're struggling and, and Jesus is, just works this miraculous thing where, where there's a miraculous catch of fish. And they're blown away by this miraculous catch of fish, and they haul it into shore, and they, they offload. And Jesus essentially tells them this as they're offloading, and he starts to engage me. He says, hey, listen, uh, don't worry. From now on, I've got something more substantial for you to do. You're going to be catchers of men. Another translation says, fishers of men. You are now going to go fishing for men. 
So essentially, Jesus gives these guys, this group of fishermen, he gives them a new mission, and it's to go fishing for men. So essentially, when we ask the question, what is the mission of the church, what are we supposed to do? We could, we could answer it by saying, in one way, uh, where to go fishing. You and I, men or women, we get to go fishing. We're fishermen, fisherwomen, if that makes any sense. I don't even know. Now, it's easy, right? So if you've been around the church for a little bit, you hear a term like that, and you go, okay, Brian, like, so what you're saying is, is I'm supposed to make converts. I'm supposed to go out and evangelize and make converts of, of people. That's part of it. But there's more to this, too, as well. The language of fishing that Jesus used actually points us to more than just conversion, but a radical reorienting of one's life. Radical reorienting of one's life. Now, fishermen back in the day would have understood in ancient times that the sea was a symbol of darkness. It was a symbol of chaos. It was a symbol of death. It was a, it was a, it was a cold place. And so they understood this as they fished. Colossians 1, Paul gives a description of what actually happens when someone becomes a follower of Jesus. He says this, he says, He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Paul uses words like delivered. And he uses words like transferred. So what we could say is Christianity is more than just forgiveness. It's certainly that, but it's more than just forgiveness. It's actually a transferal of one's lordship. One transfers their lordship from one place of darkness to another place, to Jesus, essentially, the king of light. He's saying fishing isn't just about casting a line and picking people out of the water and placing them in a service on a Sunday. There's a whole transfer of realms, of homes that take place. And what he's saying to Christians essentially is this, is, is I don't want you just to go and, and help people make a decision, a personal decision for Jesus, and then get them into a service, which isn't a bad thing. But I want you to help them go from one kingdom to another kingdom. And so the question now becomes is, how do you do that? Practically, how do you go about bringing people from one kingdom to another kingdom? And Jesus preaches a sermon on, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. He's with his, 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 this group of people, multitude of people, some interested in Jesus, some followers of Jesus. And he starts to speak to them. And he says in Matthew 5, 14, he says, you are to be a city on a hill. A city on a hill. Essentially what he tells them is that people who've been rescued from one kingdom, a kingdom of darkness, and put into another kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, are now a different people. We're now actually a city within a city, a different city within a city. We, so we're, we're a different culture within the culture that we exist in, which we inhabit, which we live in, which we engage in every single day. So Jesus essentially could be telling us this. Uh, I've called you, Free Christian Church Andover, to be a totally different Andover in the Andover that you live in. Or what we told our people in North Andover last week, uh, we've, Jesus says, hey, I've called you to be an alternate North Andover in North Andover or in Haverhill or in Bradford, or in Salem, wherever you live, wherever you make your home. So the question is this. We're a culture that, that, that is to be seen and for people to be intrigued by as we do a different way of life, a, a counterculture. And so the question is, is are we, for us to consider, are we? And what does that even mean? There's only one, I only have time for one really nugget for that, and it's this. You and I, if we're to be a city on a hill, an alternate Andover within the Andover that Jesus has placed us in for this time and season, here's what this means, right? One big nugget. You and I are going to have to be a countercultural safe haven for broken people to find refuge in. You feel me? 
You and I, as the church, are to be a countercultural safe haven for broken people to find refuge in. And when we say broken people, our minds automatically want to go to the, per the person who might be homeless, or the person who might be addicted, or the per per person who's uneducated, or hurting, or, or, or a wreck. It's obvious on the outskirts that they're a wreck. But every single human being is broken and scarred apart from the grace of Jesus. And so we need to be a welcoming, countercultural safe haven for broken people to find refuge in, a place of grace for broken people to find refuge in. We're supposed to be that type of city, right? We're asking what does it mean to be the church, essentially, right? And, and, and is it just to have a few services? Is it just to put out a few programs for people to engage in? You and I are to consider what it's like to be a different city within the city that Jesus has placed us in. And so here are some questions that I've wrestled with the last couple of weeks as I've thought through what would it look like for us to be a church, a different culture within the culture that Jesus has placed us in. Follow me. What would a culture look like where big private homes with fences and uber amounts of privacy wasn't an idol? What would a culture look like where money wasn't an idol? What would a culture look like where looks and beauty wasn't an idol? What would it look like for a culture to not idolize education and look at the uneducated or the marginalized or the hurting or the addicted as second-class citizens? What would a culture look like where men and women actually treated each other like people rather than toys and objects? Friends, free Christian church, brothers and sisters, man, this is the culture, this is the alternate culture that Jesus is building, the church that he is forming with a whole new way of life. And you know what our mission is? Our mission as the sent people of God into the everyday stuff of life with objective and with purpose is to draw people from that kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, that idolizes all those things, and to draw them into a true and better way of life, into a whole new culture, one that Jesus offers. We're to call them out of the kingdom that they're in now into the kingdom of Jesus, where our king, Jesus, stepped out of his kingdom down into this kingdom of darkness and gave his life as a price to bring us into his kingdom, the new and better way. And that doesn't just simply mean give them a personal relationship with them and then have them come do just the service and end it at that. What it means, friends, is that you and I, collectively, together, belonging to one another and to Jesus, are to be a community of the King that offers a true and better way of life because it has Jesus at the center. And you know what? When Jesus is at the center of the community, Jesus changes everything. Everything is changing, starting with you, starting with me, starting with the way we view church and do church and the way we think about life. Everything begins to change when Jesus is at the center of the church. And so here's a good question for me as a leader, for any leader in here, for us as a church collectively to be thinking about, is Jesus the center of our community? Is, the, is he the center of my life right now? The Bible calls you and I, friends, to be a community of the king. And if we're not that kind of church, we're not being what God has called us to be. And so the question is, is how are we doing here? 
You and I can't be a city or a town by ourselves. We can't be a culture by ourselves. We can't be a family by ourselves. We can't do the one another's alone. And so here's my prayer from myself as a part of this community with you and for us collectively. And here it is, and I'll close with this. May this church that Jesus is building be the true and better city that reflects the beauty and better way that Jesus offers to the people he sends us to in the everyday stuff of life. Amen? Love you guys.